not be having our lunch after service because we had our breakfast this morning. So when we're done here, we are done. You get to go home. Uh, so no lunch today. Just make a note of that. Uh, not only is this Resurrection Sunday, it's also <laughs> April Fool's Day, right? The last time that Resurrection Sunday fell on April 1st was 1956. Now, in case you're wondering, yes, that was before I was born. Okay? Just in case you're wondering, all right? So we thought we'd have a little bit of fun with the message titled that you'd be a fool not to believe the resurrection. Uh, now, we're not going to call anybody a fool this morning. We just don't do that. It's not done, especially in a large Sunday morning service. But, you know, with all the evidence uh, that proves the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened just as the Bible says it does or did, it really would kind of be difficult not to believe this. I mean, you almost seem to want to be contrary on purpose uh, not to believe what God has said. You know, Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1 both say, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Uh, the literal translation is, the fool has said, no God. So they live as if there is no standard of right and wrong, uh, no consequences for their actions, no, no judgment for their sin. Now that indeed would be foolish. Uh, but let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's read the first eight verses, and we're going to spend some time here and kind of all over the place this morning in Scripture. So uh, the back of your bulletin is blank. If you want to jot down some Scriptures that I... Uh, you know, mentioned, you can look, look them up a little later, we're not going to have time to read them all. <clears throat> but 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, this is Paul speaking, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye uh, have believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, and then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of about five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain until the present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, and then of the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me, Paul says, also, as one born out of due time. Now, this is, uh, let me tell you where we're, where we're headed with all of this. Uh, first, we're going to look at the evidence for the resurrection of Christ, or we could say reasons uh, to believe in the resurrection. There's quite a bit here, so we're just going to have a chance to hit the highlights, just the mountaintops as we go through this. Then we're going to consider the implications for you of the resurrection being a true and actual event. Because if it actually did happen, just like scripture says it happened, uh, then there's some decisions to make. There, there's some thoughts to think. There's some things to consider. After that, we'll show you that because of the bodily resurrection of Christ, uh, there is hope for all that believe unto salvation. Now, truth is not negotiable. Uh, truth is singular. 
you know, in a, in a historic sense, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his bodily resurrection, stands on ground that is just as solid as the story of George Washington uh, when he had that hard winter at Valley Forge. Reliable witnesses wrote about the meeting they talked with Jesus after his death. Skeptical enemies noticed his disappearance from the tomb. Uh, the extra-biblical historical reports were given of his resurrection. Uh, this is not a passing fancy. So let's look at uh, why you need to believe, uh, why you need to absolutely be convinced of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, first of all, if you're taking notes, number one would be the reliability of Scripture. Now, some still don't believe, even though the Bible is very plain, very clear on the subject. Uh, to make that refusal, though, a person must not only reject the eyewitness accounts and, and, and the, the, the circumstantial evidence, but, but he must make a really big leap here. The person who thinks that the resurrection is a fraud or that it's a hoax has to reject the entire New Testament. There can be no, you know, picking and choosing what we want to believe. If the resurrection is a hoax, then so is the New Testament and everything that Jesus did or everything that Jesus said. Now, Claiming that Christ was a great teacher or a prophet, as even, even unbelievers will, will attest, while rejecting his resurrection is an impossible position. When you consider what Jesus said uh, during his ministry be, before his crucifixion, it says in Luke 9, 22, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Matthew 12, verse 40, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If Jesus did not do what he said he would do, then he must be rejected completely. And along with him then goes the New Testament and the Old Testament because of all the predictions, all the prophecies of him as the Messiah. The trustworthiness of Paul would have to go too, who, who, who converted to Christ on the road to Damascus at the cost of, of, of beatings and stonings and really losing his head, literally. And 2,000 years of church history would have to go. And the very reason we do church is because Jesus is alive and well seated at the right hand of God the Father. As scripture says. The second thing is the deity and the humanity of Christ. Now only God could survive the wrath of God poured out for sin. Only a human could stand as our substitute sacrifice for that sin. So Jesus being 100% God, 100% human is unquestionably declared throughout scripture. For a person to be raised from the dead. Get this. Are you ready? For a person to be raised from the dead, they first have to die. Okay? I want to make sure you follow me here. Um, being human, Jesus could die. Matter of fact, being human, Jesus did die. 
And remarkably, Matthew, Mark, and Luke each record a simultaneous event that happened uh, some miles away from Calvary. They wrote that Jesus, uh, at the time of his death, uh, the, the veil of the temple was rent in two, not from bottom to top, as if two people grabbed each side. And, you know, this is a four-inch curtain. They're not going to rip it apart. But it ripped from the top to the bottom. Uh, this miraculous event signaled the end of the Old Testament era of animal sacrifices and that limited access to God. But that's not all it meant. It also verified that Jesus actually died, that his death uh, was a real event, that his complete sacrifice has satisfied God's demand for justice and for punishment for sin. The following events at the site of the crucifixion helped to show us, helped to confirm that Jesus really did die. He wasn't, uh, you know, swooning, as some will say. He didn't faint. The manly way of saying that is pass out, you know. Women faint, men pass out, right? You guys with me? Yeah? Men, Men don't faint, do they? I've never fainted. I've passed out a few times. Never fainted. All right, in John chapter 19, verse 33, the Roman soldiers did not break the legs because they saw, it says, that he was already dead. What they would do uh, if the crucifixion was carrying on and, and, and the person just would not die, they would break his legs so that he could not raise himself up to catch a breath and he would die from asphyxiation. They did not break his legs uh, because he was already dead. In John 19.34, the soldiers plunged the spear into his side and from it came blood and water. Joseph of, of, of Arimathea who asked for the body of Christ so that he and Nicodemus could bury it, Pontius Pilate ordered the centurion to verify that Jesus was dead. You see, nobody ever came off a cross still alive. Well, Joseph and Nicodemus, as they prepared the body for burial, according to Jewish custom, it included wrapping it in you know, linen clothes and anointing the body with a mixture of myrrh and aloes, uh, then about a hundred pounds worth of spices, uh, placing it in the tomb that was hewn out of the rock in Matthew 15, verse, verse 46. As they cared for that body, they would have known if he was still alive. You know, the Pharisees and the chief priests met with Pilate to discuss what had occurred, and they made uh, remarks like Matthew 27, 63, while he was still alive, meaning at this point he's not. The soldiers were ordered to secure the tomb with a seal. Now, in addition, the guards were placed on duty to prevent the disciples from coming to steal him away, verse 64 says. The Jewish leaders, the Roman authorities, knew beyond a doubt that Jesus was dead because you don't bury live people. Jesus, indeed, as we saw in the video, he died on that cross, but that is not the whole story. But he did absolutely die. It was necessary as every uh, lamb of atonement had died, every sacrificial lamb had died through the centuries to, 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 to roll back the sin. Jesus being the lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world, he had to die. His death was real. But now we have the evidence of an empty tomb. See, surely the authorities of Jesus' day wanted nothing more than, than, than to have Jesus stay where Joseph and Nicodemus put him. 
The mere fact that they sealed the tomb and placed guards to protect it, which was very unusual, that didn't happen all the time. It indicated that they were determined to make sure that body stayed behind that stone and nobody came and snatched it away. They would surely have been foolish to spread the rumor that the disciples had stolen the body if Jesus was still in the tomb. No, Jesus' disappearance was the sole cause of their concern. So, so, so their collusion with the guards is solid proof that, that when the stone was rolled away and there was no body there, that it was actually an empty tomb that our Savior resurrected from the dead by his own power. Now, if you're going to perpetrate a hoax like this in this culture, you would not use women as witnesses. See, the first to see the report of the empty tomb were the women with the spices in Mark's account, uh, chapter 16, verses 5 and 6. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a, in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. Uh, that's a nice way of saying they were scared out of their minds. Verse 6, and he saith unto them, Be not affrighted, ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen, he is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Now, again, if you wanted to perpetrate a hoax, you would not, in this culture, make your star witnesses women. They were not allowed to give testimony in court because they were considered unreliable. Yet, Scripture records the ones to first witness the resurrected Savior were women. Secondly, the bribed guards. The Roman soldiers, now they were no cowards. They were, they were vicious, animal-like men. They were specially trained. They were tough-minded. They were well-equipped warriors. And, and you ever notice the reaction of the soldiers when you know, they were protecting uh, Jesus' tomb, when they, when they felt the earth move and saw the angel? Uh, I mean, they fell down as dead men. They were shaken because of this. Now, now, look, the Roman army worked a little different than our army does today. When you were given a charge like this, um, they, they knew that the various punishments that were handed out for a soldier that couldn't stay awake or a soldier that lost his charge, sometimes they were beaten. Sometimes they would set the soldiers on fire. Most of the time they were just very quickly executed. And these brave Roman animal-like soldiers, well-armed, had no way to stop this angel, and that gave them even more reason to be afraid. The officials realizing that, 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 that sending Jesus to his death had not accomplished what they wanted it to accomplish. So they needed to concoct this story as, as, as if a, a bunch of fishermen could overpower some Roman guards. So they bribed the soldiers to spread the news that the disciples came and stole the body while they slept. And the third evidence of an empty tomb is that martyrs don't die for a lie. 
A fictional story can't possibly account for the changes in the lives of the disciples. They had no reason to devise such a scheme. They didn't have the courage that it would take to defend such a bold-faced lie. This is what Chuck Colson says. He says, I know the resurrection is fact, and Watergate, you remember Watergate? All right. And Watergate proved it to me. How? He says, because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, uh, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put into prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. He says, you're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? He says, it's absolutely impossible. See, for a lie, Peter would not have been hung upside down on the cross. Mark would not have been drugged through the streets to his death defending fiction. James would not have been beheaded for a falsehood. Thomas would not have been pierced with a lance for a lie. Yet tradition says that these men died horrible, horrible deaths, just like we described, and it's a testimony to the truth of their claim. They were willing to die for the one who overcame death for them. Nobody dies for a lie. And the fourth thing is all the people who saw the risen Savior I mean, for 40 days he made his presence known throughout the land. So, so let's look and see who saw Jesus and kind of where he appeared. We have to go through these quick. I'm just going to list them off. If you want the scripture references, I can give them to you uh, after the service. But we're going to just have to go through these very, very quickly. First of all, there's Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Several other women ran from the tomb and saw him. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus saw him. Peter saw him at at some undisclosed location. We're not quite sure where that was. The ten disciples saw him in the upper room. And then later, doubting Thomas, remember him? Yeah, then Thomas joined him, and, and that was now 11 in the upper room. Seven men saw him at the Sea of Galilee, 11 of his disciples on, on the mount, and to his disciples he appeared near Bethany. And we see in 1 Corinthians fifteen six that he appeared to over 500 people at once. The evidence is clear. Jesus absolutely died on that cross. And he absolutely resurrected. It is okay to say amen every once in a while if you want to. It's it's not going to bother me a bit. Something else you'll notice (laughs) is that the changed lives of those that are genuinely converted. See, without the faith of those resurrection witnesses, the new faith of those who believe their testimony about it, we would have no Christianity today. Christianity is always one generation from oblivion. It's not going to go into oblivion. But standing before all people all over the, you know, from, from all over the Roman Empire, including many in Jerusalem, Peter described Jesus in Acts chapter 2 verse 24 as one that God had raised up. He also said this Jesus God raised up of which we are all witnesses in verse 32. And as a result of this clear, straightforward message, that first sermon, 3,000 people came to Christ. 
Without the resurrection, these claims would be, would be useless. They'd be frivolous, unfounded lies. Down through the centuries, one of the most powerful evidences of the living Lord Jesus Christ is his power to remake a vile, wicked sinner into a loving, changed saint. Jesus changes the way we think because the way we think needs changing. That changes the way we act because the way we act needs changing. That in turn changes the way we live because the way we live needs changing. Now, number two, since the resurrection is true, there's some implications involved. There's some thinks you have to think some thoughts you have to dwell on because if Jesus really did rise from the dead exactly like scripture says then that means some things for us first of all if Jesus resurrected then as we said before and this isn't me trying to be cute or 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 frivolous but it means that he really did die If he resurrected, if he came back to life from the dead, it means that he was dead. As we said, only one who has died can be resurrected. It means that the resurrection is real. And if he really died as he did according to the scriptures, then the reason for his dying for sin is real. See, sin, therefore, is the real issue. You see, if you don't know Jesus as Savior, you're condemned already to the lake of fire, to hell. After you die, hell's not the problem. Hell's just the penalty. The problem is sin. It separates you from God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned. Everybody. If you've shown up on this planet, you're a sinner. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. That's Adam. So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Adam is our federal head, so to speak. Uh, The purpose of the cross stands as fact. People everywhere, you, me, we need saving from our sins. Our sins is the problem. Jesus dying on the cross is proof that your lostness in sin is, is a real problem for you. Because if you stand before God without faith in Jesus Christ, you will face God as an enemy, as a judge, not as a friend. Third thing, if sin is real, and it is, then you are guilty. You are separated from God. And, and actually you are, are, are not just separated from God, but, but you're God's enemy. John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world. Remember that one? You drop down a couple of verses to verse 18. He that believeth on him, that's Christ, is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Not believing on Jesus Christ to your salvation is proof of your already existing condemnation and sin. And, and Psalm 711, you know, we all like to believe that God is love. And that's all God is, is love. And he's nothing else but love. That's not true. God is holy and God is righteous and God is just. And Psalm 711 says God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. 
all those who have not trusted Jesus as their Savior, God is angry at them for their wickedness, for their rejection of Jesus Christ as their Savior. You know, if there was any other way for you to get to heaven, God would not have had Jesus lay down his life. That Jesus died the way scripture says means that his death was the only way for your sins to be dealt with. There was no other way. In John chapter 14 verse 6, Jesus is speaking. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If anyone is going to get to heaven, they must go through Jesus Christ. You see, you can never do good enough to counter the evil of your sin. Jesus' punishment for sin shows us how severe the crime of our sin really is. Now, that doesn't work when you look at our, our judicial system today, but it used to be that you could tell how severe a crime was by how severe the punishment was that was meted out for it. Well, if God is going to place a sinner in the lake of fire, bound for all eternity for their sins, that means that sin must be very, very bad. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 6, it says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, the very best. We try our hardest and we try to stay clean and we try not to sin and we try to love our neighbor and we try to pick up after the kids and do the dishes so the wife doesn't have to tell us. We even empty the dishwasher every single time. No, it doesn't matter. The very best we can do is discarded medical waste. It's used toilet paper. You don't ever give that as a gift to somebody. That's nasty. But God says the very best you can do is just like handing used toilet paper to God. You try to work your way to heaven. You try to be good enough on your own. It's an insult to God. The very best you can do is disgusting in the sight of God. Which is why you need Jesus Christ. Because his righteousness fills the gap where your righteousness falls so horribly short. Now if this is real, and it is, then God has already judged you as condemned and you await the carrying out of your sentence. Like we saw in John chapter 3 verse 18, that you're condemned already. Your sentence is eternal punishment, separation from God. Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Your name doesn't get written in the book of life until you've trusted Jesus as your Savior. And your sentence is going to be carried out at the appointed time. Romans chapter 9, verse 27, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after that the judgment. Everybody has an appointment. Everybody is going to keep that appointment. And since you cannot endure 
the infinite intensity of God's wrath against your sin, you must endure the infinite duration of God's wrath against your sin. That is why hell lasts for eternity. That is how bad, how wicked, how vile your sin is in the sight of God. But there's more. Since the crucifixion and the resurrection are indisputable, indisputable facts, there's a, there's a hope. There's a hope for all who are condemned in their sins. This means that the sinner is savable and that the saved have an eternal hope. Let's talk about the uh, Christian's hope first. Um, Christ's life on earth for the believer uh, is, is, is a shadow of, of our life in heaven. What he did on earth, uh, healing the sick. In heaven, there's going to be no more sickness, uh, no more effects of sin, no more death. That's going to be incredible. Jesus has conquered sin. He's conquered death. He's conquered hell. And if Jesus didn't rise from the uh, rise again from the dead then then we have no hope but jesus rose from the dead he beat death and he beat sin and he beat hell see by jesus healing the sick and the lame and the blind he showed us that he conquered sin and the effects of sin and in heaven there'll be no more sin it'll be removed erased from his presence and by raising people from the dead he showed that he conquered death by he himself raising himself from the dead he beat death so for us believers we should have no fear of death Jesus killed it. Now, for the believer, those who have trusted Christ as Savior, death is nothing more than walking through a door from one room to the next. Yeah, we may be a little apprehensive about the way we walk through that door. We all want it quick and painless and, you know, with dignity, right? That doesn't always happen. But for the believer... If you know Jesus as your Savior, then death has no sting. No sting. No regret. By his raising from the grave, he conquered hell. The price is paid by him. It's credited to our account by us being saved by him. The resurrection stops every accusation that Satan can hurl at the believer because we are, 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 are born again. All that is Jesus's is ours because we are in him. Satan has nothing to accuse us of because Satan can accuse Christ. So the accuser has lost his teeth. You know, we even defeat Satan by our suffering. Because our suffering for Christ brings eternal delight for Christ. It lifts up the name of Christ. It brings glory to Christ. All of this, and we get to spend eternity with him. 
Now that, my Christian friend, is hope. That is security. See, a lot of people want to go to heaven. They just don't want God to be there. You've heard me say that before. They, they want to go to heaven, really meaning they just don't want to go to hell. And they think they're going to get to heaven and get to do whatever they want. No, no, that's not the way it works. Heaven's going to be heaven because Jesus will be there. And if you're not excited about seeing Jesus when you walk through that door of death, then you've, your thinking is askew. It is Jesus that we look forward to. Now let's talk about those who still need to get saved. Those who haven't trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. God's justice system allows for substitution. Now sin must be paid for. God's not going to wink at it. He's not going to sweep it under the rug. He's not going to let it go. Either you pay for your sin or you must find a qualified substitute to do it for you. That substitute must be human in order to represent you, but that substitute must also be free of their own sin or they could not die for your sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I think it's verse 22, uh, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God put our sin on Jesus, and by our faith in Jesus, God puts Jesus' righteousness then on us. God's justice system allows for substitution. Secondly, Jesus can be your substitute. From the first Passover lamb before the nation of Israel left Egypt, uh, um, until Jesus' atoning sacrifice, all of those lambs dying, as we said, were pointing to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world himself. When Jesus hung on the cross, what the Roman soldiers did to him was, did nothing for your sin. What the Jewish crowds did to him did nothing for your sin. Now, when Jesus was on the cross, what the Father did to his own Son is what did something for your sin. See, God crushed his Son under the weight of the penalty of sin so that you could be forgiven and be dressed in Christ's righteousness instead of your nasty, filthy, used toilet paper righteousness. See, he's done it all. Jesus has met every requirement. He is human so he can represent you. And he is sinless so he can die for your sins. And he is God so he can, he did, defeat death. That means that his death paid the full penalty for your sins. Every iota of sin is paid for. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 12, it says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still God's enemy, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Verse 10, For if we uh, were enemies, for when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, 
we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. See, it is, it is your sin that put Jesus on that cross. Until you see the cross as that which you have done, you will never appreciate what it has done for you. It is your sin, your guilt, your shame that hung Jesus on that cross. But his resurrection, though, guarantees power over that sin and power over that death. Uh, look back in 1 Corinthians 15, if you're still, still there, 1 Corinthians 15, look at verses 20 to 22. It says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. See, that's Adam and that's Christ. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. He offers you his salvation. He offers you salvation from your sins. The very thing that separates you from God, the very thing that's already condemned you in the sight of God, he can take care of that. We all know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have what everlasting Everlasting life he has done it romans chapter 10 verse 11 and verse 13 it says for the scripture saith whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed verse 13 for whosoever shall call upon the name of the lord shall be saved now let me Let me tell you how Jesus will save you. Because if you're still in your sin, you need to be saved from your sin. First of all, you you need to turn from your sin. Your old life of rebellion. You need to repent. That's what the Bible term is. Uh, It doesn't have to be a perfect repentance. You don't have to remember every single sin you've ever committed. Uh, But you need to see and understand that your sin has separated you from God. And that you are guilty and that you are powerless to do anything about it. You must change your mind about your sin and agree with God as to your wickedness. And right about now your pride is starting to kind of stiffen your neck a little bit. And says, who do you think you are telling me I'm a sinner? Who do you think you are telling me i got to repent of anything? Well, you can shoot the messenger if you want. But the word of God says what the word of God says. And your beef really isn't with me, it's with, it's with God. And if you want to fight God, you can try. Let me know how that works out for you. Usually not very well. The second thing you need to do is turn to Christ, turn to Jesus in faith, believing it's coming to Christ. See, Jesus himself is who saves you. Uh, Just as a Coast Guard rescue swimmer will jump from the helicopter or be lowered uh, by the flight mech into the water and he will pull you into the basket to rescue you. Jesus jumped into humanity to save you himself. All you've got to do is come to him in faith. 
See, the Bible says to receive, to believe in, to believe on, to come to Jesus. And Jesus said that he would save all that would come to him, Romans 10. See, there are no magic words. There's, there's no sinner's prayer. There's no incantation to chant to get Jesus to save you. You come to Jesus by faith, and he says he will save you from your sins. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, even, even the faith to believe is a gift from God. That he will do everything that needs to be done so that you have nothing to do but believe. So you get the benefits of salvation and he gets all the glory. See, the reason we do this Easter thing is because the empty grave is so much more than just an empty hole in the ground. It is, it is testament to our God keeping his word saying that he would save to the uttermost all that come to Christ in faith and that he would, he would remove the power and, 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 and the penalty of sin and later when we get to heaven he would remove the very presence of sin from us and all we must do is come to Jesus by faith repenting of our sins and turning to him. You need forgiveness of your sins because your sins have offended the holiness and the justice of the holy Lord God Almighty and he will not let it slide. He will not wink at it. He will not sweep it under the rug. Your sins must be paid for. And it's either by you for eternity or it's by Christ and him saving you. While he loves you, he cannot accept you because of your sin. Unconditional love does not mean unconditional acceptance. He will only accept you by Jesus saving you. And you are made acceptable by your faith in Christ who saves you. Look, we're... Haven't you carried that sin long enough? Don't you want forgiveness from this? Freedom, life, friendship with God instead of enmity with him? Instead of him being angry at you? Instead of him uh, looking at you as a condemned sinner? Wouldn't you rather have him look at you as a loving father? Then you come to Christ. You receive Christ. You trust Christ to save you. And he will save you from your sins. And he will make you acceptable to God through himself. And once that takes place, once you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, once you're saved, once you're born again, once you've repented and turned to Christ, and your sins are forgiven, then you are forever saved. And, 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 and God is now forever your Heavenly Father. Never, never will he look at you with condemnation again. Because of everything he poured out on Christ for you. But if you do not trust Christ as Savior, you are altogether condemned and hopelessly lost in your sin. And it does not have to be that way. You can be saved from your sins because we celebrate an empty grave. You can be saved 
from your sins because God poured out his hot hatred, wrath on Jesus Christ for your sin. All you must do is come to Christ by faith. He's done everything else that needs to be done. So the last question I need to ask you is what are you going to do with Jesus? I want you to stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a few moments. We don't do this very often, um, but we're going to do it this morning because of the nature of the service. I'm sure that in a crowd this size, there, just statistically speaking, there are folks that do not know Jesus as their Savior. And if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, if you're not sure, with all the heads bowed, all the eyes closed, not looking to embarrass anybody, so could you put your hand up and say, Pastor, pray for me. You know you don't know Christ. You're not sure if you know Christ or not. Pop the hand up and hand down really quick. Okay, I see I see several hands. Several. Thank you. And put them down. Will there be anybody else? I, I know I'm lost or I don't know for sure if, I've, if I died that heaven would be my home. Put your hand up and hand down. Okay, I see that one too. All right. Father, we come to you this morning. And Lord, you've seen the hands. Those who, who either aren't sure or just know that they've never come to Jesus by faith. And Father, I pray for these folks this morning. I pray, Lord, that, that your Holy Spirit would draw them. I pray that you would work in them. I pray, Father, that you would so work to convict them of their sin and convince them of their need for Jesus, that they would not be able to sleep until they have this matter settled with you. Father, you have offered us so much through Jesus Christ. And Father, these folks have have been brave enough to come to a strange church on a Sunday morning and they've sat through a message and they have raised their hand as testimony that they need something from you. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would convict of sin and convince of their need for Jesus as Savior. Father, in the stillness of this time, while believers are praying for those that are lost, I pray that your spirit would would minister your truth to the lost. Father, we pray for those hands that were raised, that today would be the day they come to Christ by faith. Still with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. uh, Again, we don't usually do things this way. But if you would like to know more about this, I'm going to ask you to um, I'm going to ask you to come up up front here and just have a seat on this first row to my right, to your left. Um, If you want to know more about this, just make your way to the front now. All the heads are bowed and all the eyes are closed. I'm not going to embarrass you, not going to put you on the spot, but we need to go over some things with you from the Word of God. We want to take the time to do it and to do it right. So if the Lord has spoken to you, you know that you need Jesus as your Savior, I'm going to ask you to come forward. 
And you can do that now while we wait. Father, you know the hearts. I pray, Father, that you would continue to speak. I pray, Father, that those that raise their hand would... But, Father, actually you'll make them as uncomfortable as necessary. Only, really, only the way you can, through your love and your tenderness and your drawing and, and your bringing to mind things that they have heard through the years from your word. That, Father, you would so work on them and you would, com- you, you would work in them with such tenacity that they not have rest until Christ be formed in them. So that they, like the rest of us, can experience the forgiveness of our sins and having you as our Heavenly Father and having you work in us and change us and give us a, an, an, an eternal hope of salvation that is beyond all understanding. Father, thank you for this time together with your word. Help us, Lord, as this week goes on, that we not forget that that our Jesus is alive. Help us continually, Lord, celebrate the life of our risen Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to have you be seated for just a moment. We have a... Some gifts here, if I could have the Christy and Robert and them come up. Just some little gifts from the church, um, since it is Easter. And they're going to uh, pass those out in just a moment as Chris is going to come lead us in a closing hymn. You can remain seated for the closing hymn. Uh, then when uh, you've received your gift and the song is done, uh, then I wish you a happy Resurrection Sunday. It's a beautiful day outside. It's a wonderful day that God has made. Let's go out and rejoice in it. Chris, would you come? All right, please open up to 112, the old Oregon cross. Yeah.
Thank you so much for sitting your son, letting him die, and letting him rise again. Just pray that we will go out today with that in mind and just share your word across the land. In your name, amen. All right.